0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all of our content on the internet, uh, if you're watching the screen right now, this is our YouTube. Uh, it is Focus Compounding. Uh, we have Focus Compounding, the websites, we have my Twitter, we have YouTube, and then of course we have the podcast. Um, so if you're into learning more about our content, we're basically everywhere on the internet uh, as long as you type in Focus Compounding. Um, so we've been recording podcasts for over four years now. Um we're we having a lot of fun doing it. Uh huh. We're having a lot of fun doing it. So, if you want to go through our backlog, I promise you, um, there's a lot of listening and watching for you to do. If you're interested in learning more about our money management services, uh, we are investors. We do run a hedge fund and a managed accounts arm. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about that, you could go to the invest with us tab at focuscompounding.com. Um, so in today's podcast, we are going to. If you, have you ever seen the markets and turmoil segment on CNBC? No, no,
1: I have
0: not. <laughs> I could answer that question. No, you have not. Um, I've never actually seen it on CNBC because okay. I don't watch CNBC, but I've seen the clips that uh, CNBC or other people will tweet out. It's just a quick segment that says markets and turmoil. Um, and people always kind of use it as a joke because as soon as they start playing that segment then that means like, oh, we've bought them and markets are you know going to go up. But since, we, um, uh, since markets have been selling off, and they are currently selling off right now, um, uh, I thought it would be great to dedicate a podcast to Snap Judgments to see if we could actually pick out some interesting cheap stocks okay. that um, people have been following. And the only caveat I added when I did a call for stocks um, is... What stocks do you want us to look at on the pod? Please share companies that look cheap based on valuation um, and not just because it's down a bunch from its 52-week high. Uh, but before we jump into that, I could pull up my handy-dandy PowerPoint right here. Mm-hmm. SP500 down 70% year-to-date. I think uh, I just checked in the car before I pulled up. We're down about another 2%, so we're very close to the bear market territory in the S P 500. Uh, I believe the NASDAQ's already there. 10-year, yeah. uh, 2.812%. Uh, crude oil, $110 a barrel. And natural gas, uh, $8.749. Uh, that had a new high today. That's something that's, I mean, these, that's a crazy move in natural gas. It I think is. it's up like 150% year to date. I mean, these are not tiny moves no. in natural gas. And honestly, I don't think a lot of people are talking a lot of no, people it. are probably wondering why we're the
1: only one that uh, lists natural gas on the. Uh, yeah,
0: it is <laughs> a KPI. We do, I do
1: follow. Right? Yeah, um, yeah, it's up a lot more than oil. Yeah, uh huh. Because oil was what six? Uh, yeah, I mean, in the last year, it was over sixty a year ago already. So it's not even up a hundred percent. Do you have any
0: thoughts on? I feel like a lot of people when they look at like the oil markets, especially if you're just a value investor. Um, They're just so volatile, right? Like Mm -hmm. you look at crude oil. I mean, what a year and a half ago, we were recording a podcast where oil was negative $30 a barrel. So they were paying people to take away Mm -hmm. oil. And here we are today at $110 a barrel. I mean, just such crazy volatility. And then natural gas as well. Do you have any general thoughts on crude or natural gas? Or, I mean, again, it's like we're not commodity investors, but we do invest in companies that have exposure to. The commodity markets
1: um not uh yeah so i don't really have a lot of thoughts um they're physical markets you know so there's a speculative component to it but unlike the other things we're seeing here with um treasuries and with the s p uh you know look at inventories and things like that it's the same thing when we talk about used cars or houses um you know prices can move a lot because you can't suddenly put in a lot more supply and if, if there's short term increase in demand or what happened with covid which is a drop in demand the likes of which had never happened before you know there's never been a sudden drop in oil demand like that
0: i hate that whenever i hear the likes of which i think of donald trump <laughs> the likes of <laughs> the which likes you've of never which. <laughs> seen before um but how do you handicap that as an investor are you just looking for the extreme points um and, and that's true right because we look at all this mm-hmm. on a screen but all of this supply takes time to work out um right which is challenging. I mean, I was actually reading an article of what's going on in the Permian Basin. And uh, this article was saying that they're just having a hard time meeting demand. I mean, it's hard to hire truckers. It's hard to hire people. um, So it's like the supply side, just not really getting balanced out. Yeah, the one thing I've mentioned
1: before is I don't like the break-even price idea that you know at this price um, is what we need to break even on this production at this place, because what happens is at the bottom of the cycle, it's pretty cheap to be able to increase production. And at the top of the cycle, it's really expensive because everyone else wants all of the uh, same services, same labor, all those things. I mean, the things we're seeing with a tight labor market and and inflation are true for anyone who wants to increase production of oil. It's going to cost a lot more now than it did, you know, two years ago. Mm Mm-hmm. Try hiring people and, you know, bringing on a lot more. The same with home building or any of those things. You know, you can't suddenly start things up and shut them down like that. I mean, you could if you had slack in the labor market. But
0: it just throughout the entire economy, things are tight. So what do you do? I mean, like a company like um, NACO that has a minerals management part of yeah. the business. I mean, when oil and gas is this high, I mean, <laughs> from a capital allocator perspective, I mean, does that make it? tough for me, to your point. Yeah. I always like to bring everything back to real estate, because I think most okay. people generally kind of understand real estate, because mm-hmm. they either own a house or they see it, whatever, it's tangible. But sure, I think a lot, most people could understand it's probably tough to be a builder when prices have gone up two to three times since mm-hmm. 2020. I don't know if that's the exact number, but when I'm on Zillow, and I'm looking at like the home values of a lot of these houses from 2020. Mm-hmm. I'm like, holy smokes, this value's gone up. Two to three times since 2020. That's pretty crazy.
1: Yeah, but in some places, you know, the the cost to reproduce is gone up by a large amount, too. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's a lot different. This is true for any market that we're looking at. Uh, You're speculating when you're talking about a price that is significantly higher than the cost to bring on new supply in the same area, you know, comparable. So, if you're talking about a house and the cost per square foot to build a house is similar to the price you're looking at. That's very different than if the cost would be much lower, but you're saying, well, but their land is scarce and there's going to be these issues with getting permits and stuff. And so I'm willing to uh, pay a lot for this, but it's a big premium over what it would really cost to reproduce it. But if you're talking about something like when we talk about car dealers and stuff, some of them trade at prices that aren't very different from what it would cost to have, you know, to add new supply. And so if that's the case, you know, when you're talking about price of tangible book, um, and things like that that give you a hint about that then you're not really speculating a lot even though it may go up a lot over time the cost to um you know with inflation
0: the cost to uh build certain things goes up a lot how do car dealers manage that then when they're buying inventory themselves could they be caught holding the bag yeah
1: Yeah. it seems very challenging well carvana was caught Mm -hmm. that way but so is walmart and target and companies like that Um, it's hard for all of them. Some of it is, we talk about the trade-offs between reliability and efficiency. And a lot of times companies focus on efficiency in the current period, what they think is going to give them the best outcome, but that can be risky. And that's kind of, and some of them probably use a lot of computer stuff to figure this out and they don't have, um, experience in different environments or they've forgotten those environments so things like target and walmart but also home depot and best buy but you know they've they've done better but they have the same issues potentially in car dealers um, how much inventory should you carry should you really respond as much as they did to a big increase in demand they probably shouldn't have um, i was actually out of walmart before they came out with their earnings and was horrified by the inventory situation i'd never seen anything like it it was just spilling out. I mean, they were Okay, just, so take us through that. It was... I, I was like baffled by what was going on. And it didn't look like they could take any more inventory than they already had. They had things stocked really badly where stuff oh, was boy. like... They had filled up an entire area that customers could actually reach. And so they had different... Um, Flavors and, and different, uh, you know, slightly different brand things with the SKUs that are a little less popular that are just stacked up higher because they couldn't even get all the product out there to have, you know, facings for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so many new employees. It looked like they were having, like, um, conferences in the really? halls, basically, because there were so many people who obviously were new, didn't know what they were doing, and were watching other people do stuff to, like, learn how to do it. And so I'm there, and it's closing. And uh, so I see all of a sudden I'm horrified by it. And then they've got like five giant trucks they're pulling in to like bring more stuff out. Oh boy. Yeah. So, but that's one Walmart and everything. But that w- I'd never seen it like that. And but, of course, in the there was a point in COVID where I saw, um, I don't remember being a Walmart, but I saw some Target and stuff that were completely understocked with things to the point that they're being wiped out, you know, in the first few weeks of people hoarding stuff.
0: It was bad. So, you know. They have to deal with each of those problems so they made a mistake mm-hmm. and i mean news came out that amazon there they yeah. have like a hiring freeze and i think they're going to lay off people and they and, have too much warehouse space. and they, yeah they're getting they're they trying to get out of their warehouse space, space. And yeah we've talked about that that's the biggest fear we have when looking at these companies is just projecting certain things that's going on today into the future that's what makes all of this so freaking hard um yeah and i think they're more responsive than ever
1: these companies, Amazon, Walmart, ones like that, to trends that they see. And they over, they leaned into those trends too much instead of using some common sense about what was happening with COVID. And always they're afraid of losing sales. So they'd rather um, have problems with too much inventory than to uh, lose market share, you know.
0: and But it was, obviously it's gonna be a problem for them. Yeah, Target, um, they reported this past week. and. I did have it up on the screen, but um, you know, they basically said that demand from uh customer shopping and stuff like that is kind of waning. You know, a lot of people gave Shaquille O'Neal crap or flack because he said that with gas prices high, you know, the typical person's gonna not spend as much on these other things you know, like a Target and Walmart and stuff like that. People thought it was a joke when he was talking about it, like his logic by the whole thing. But I mean, it's actually true, right? When gas prices, I mean, I saw in California uh, a picture, of $7, over $7 mm-hmm. per gallon. And where we live, which probably will have the cheaper um, yeah. uh, uh, price per gallon, is like, you know, four mm-hmm. high fours. I don't think we've crossed the $5. barrel yet but or per gallon but it's just crazy i mean if the fed wanted stuff to slow down the market to slow down i definitely feel like that's going on right now in the market the amount of wealth that's come out of the stock market the amount of wealth that's come out of crypto the excess and all those sorts of things we're seeing it play out day by day in the market so it's been kind of interesting to see did you uh, do you have any thoughts on like Target or Walmart or anything like that? Or was that just sort of a soft sign that you saw uh, from just being a normal customer?
1: Well, reading their um, statements that they put out around earnings, so these are quotes from earnings call transcripts and things like that. Um, it'll be interesting if things slow down significantly and inflation gets under control, then they'll be okay. But they're not shifting as much as you might think in terms of their approach. Um, you know, if you think about the actual real volumes that they're doing, they were really weak and they probably needed higher prices and less increases in certain expenses than what they had. Um, I think they've grown for a long time by trying to have key prices really low compared to their competition. And... uh We'll see how that goes, but they could run – but certain business models like Walmart and Target could run into some real problems if they don't – and some dollar stores and stuff like that if they don't kind of adjust to what's happening now. Because people who are at these companies uh, have had entire careers where they didn't have experience with what it was like in the early days of Walmart um, where inflation was a lot different. So – and especially because these companies source a lot of stuff from China, where there's more deflation in the products coming in than there is in other parts of the economy. There's not Historically, there hasn't been as much inflation in what's sold at Walmart and Target as there is in the economy overall, like services stuff, sticky inflation that I talk about all the time. That, that stuff always ran higher. Um, so it's kind of
0: part of their strategy to keep a very tight focus on not increasing prices. And would you like to see them increase prices if you were an investor I looking think c- at Walmart? Clearly, increasing prices would have helped mm-hmm. um, because I think they may not have
1: understood the elasticity of demand in the face of price increases. It's likely that if they had increased prices, they wouldn't have hurt demand as much as they thought they would have. That de- that keeping prices low in real terms didn't drive actual increased demand by much at all. Can There's you explain very little that? evidence. Elas- like what, what that means for people that are. So, so far with the, a lot of these companies that have reported, I'm seeing very little evidence that people are responsive to price changes. So um, increasing or decreasing the price on an item by 5% probably is not driving significant changes in the amount of sales that you're getting. So for instance, cutting something by 5% doesn't seem to be driving much in the way of increasing your sales, but also raising prices might not hurt you that way. Um, So it's important to know that number more than anything else. That's really the number that you should be focusing on with any business in terms of your pricing. Many businesses don't focus on that and have other ways of thinking about pricing, but that's ultimately what you want to worry about. Um, you know, So for instance, as an example, um, let's say you have a chain of gas stations and you really make your money on the uh, convenience store aspect of it, right? Mm-hmm. So people think that higher gas prices are good for you, but they're actually bad for you because the total volume that you'll sell will be lower because gas prices are up when that happens, you actually get lower traffic through your stores. And if gas prices are up and nothing else is up, when that happens, it actually is bad for um, the location. And that's because of the elasticity of demand. There is some responsiveness. It's not very big with gas, but there's some, um, which means that people consume a little less gas when the price is higher. And if you're not making a profit on that, then it causes you a problem. And some places have
0: gas as one of the ways to draw people in. Hmm. So you would like to see I mean, we, we spoke about through COVID, there was a few companies where they were just experiencing so much demand. And you always said to me, they should just raise their prices if demand is killing them right oh, now. Disney understood this with their hotels and yeah. stuff. Yeah, they
1: raised prices. Mm-hmm. And I think they were right to do mm-hmm. it. Um, because they didn't want to cause demand to drop so much at their domestic
0: parks. So then what do you do when demand starts to slow down? Do you reduce your prices? No, so you just keep it right
1: there. Well, you might reduce them, but what you need to do is think about how the responsiveness is. Hotels are into this in the early days of COVID. Their models would tell them to cut prices, but there's a point where they realized airlines do, but hotels realized that cutting your prices beyond a certain point is doing absolutely nothing because the reason people aren't going is because they're not traveling, they're not going to be there anyway, they're worried about COVID in that area, whatever. It is not because you can entice them with having a room rate that's fifty dollars instead of one hundred fifty dollars. In normal times, you can adjust that so that you know how much occupancy you can drive, but that may not be the case in some other situations. And I think what Walmart and Target probably didn't realize is that their lack of real demand has to do with people being exhausted in terms of real units purchased. So it's not that you're not buying a big screen TV or recliner or whatever because the price is wrong on it. It may be because you bought it last year. And that's very important to understand things like used cars. Um, you know, there for cars generally, there hasn't been, we talk about like bubbles and things and stuff like that. There hasn't been much of that. So there's been a huge increase in prices, but it won't really change much the trajectory of people's car purchases in the future as much as you might think because it's not like you built a lot of cars and actually gave um, took up more supply That will have an effect in future years. Um, You didn't at all in in a lot of countries. So like the US, UK, places like that, it it really hasn't shifted expectations in my mind for what car sales will be three or five years out. Whereas like in the housing bubble, you actually built a lot of houses. So that changes things a lot. That's a very hard overhang to deal with if you literally have too many houses in some places. But we're not running into that with too many cars in some places really. So it's important to, Um, Keep in mind that sort of thing, that an oversupply, which is a very bad situation, is different than just a price going up a lot and then coming down. That can have some big short-term effects. Um, We talked about a little bit with housing with increased mortgage rates and things like that. But the bigger issue is like if you see an increase in, um, in the actual supply of homes newly built in some areas, that's a thing that takes longer to work through,
0: you know. And the opposite of that, having low inventory yeah. is going to yeah. take a long time to work through we, as well. We talked about reading the Daily Shot, that email. Yep. Yeah. So you can look at I'm so they- happy you like reading that. I knew you would like it. I knew it, Jeff. I knew it. <laughs> you People can- could go to the DailyShot.com. It's like 15 bucks and you get a, a daily shot, a daily mm-hmm. email of just economic data that's right. going on throughout the world. So they're
1: great graphs, especially not because of the what the graphs are, but how they choose to show them to you so for instance one of the things that they do a lot is like the last five six or seven years or whatever giving you throughout the year the levels of this uh uh, series that they're tracking was at so like inventories you can see, okay what are gasoline inventories now versus what they are this time of year in 2017 and 2015 and you know and compared to this year and not just a one-year thing or something like that and when you have um Things where you're below the level of the inventory that you normally have at this time of this, you know, month uh, for each of the last five, six, seven years, then that's a tight uh, situation, right? Mm -hmm. Now, some things can change, like for instance, in gasoline, there is some changes to conservation and things like that. So if you have a much higher price, but the same inventory level, that means you might get through uh, in the future better than you had before because you're actually getting demand destruction right? By um, having so much higher prices. And of course, for some of the other things we talked about natural gas and stuff like that, you also have, we can't predict what the future weather will be. So an inventory level might be appropriate if you're about to have an unusually seasonable uh, period. Uh, Whereas it's not good if you have a low inventory level and then you have an unusually uh, hot period or cold period of whatever it is that you would have a lot of demand for um, heating right? Mm -hmm. So there's always those factors. Um, But I think Walmart and Target are good examples of places that we know the lot was sold. You know, the extreme example is like a Peloton or something, Mm -hmm. right? We talk about that. But a lot of stuff sold at Walmart and Target, and they should know this about what they're selling and what they're not selling, um, is stuff that people don't need to repeat purchase in future periods and can put off. They're more durable items. um, And they also have shifts with how people spend when they're at home versus how they spend when they're out. So it could be a shift that means you're selling less um, furniture and you're selling more makeup and clothing and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. And they should be able to see all those patterns, but have an idea of that. And you want to slow down the rate at which you're buying certain things uh, based on that idea. But they're reluctant usually to predict future um, declines in demand from what they are now, because if they do that, then they're not buying a particularly hot selling item, what it looks like now, but that can be how you end up with too much inventory.
0: I wanted to hit pretty quickly just on, uh, Twitter, since we talked about Twitter and spirit as a potential arbitrage, Musk had tweeted back to somebody somebody said if 25% of the users are bots then the Twitter acquisition deal should cost 25% less he says absolutely um so that's the way that he's communicating is through Twitter mm-hmm. um somebody else says yeah has Twitter gotten back to you on how many real active users they have or same as before and he says no they still refuse to explain how they calculate that 5% of daily users are fake slash spam very suspicious. Mm -hmm. Um, So Twitter said that they are moving ahead with the deal. Elon has uh, shown, I guess, no sort of motivation for that to happen. Um, They do have a signed agreement. I think this is going to be interesting to watch from the sidelines. Have you ever seen a situation like this where they have a signed agreement and one of the parties wants to back out? I mean, Snapchat reported earnings yesterday. Right. Twitter um, would probably be
1: down by more than 25% if it wasn't for the deal.
0: Uh-huh, Because yeah, I
1: mean, businesses, I mean, as you're pulling this up, Snapchat's down 40%.
0: Yeah.
1: And presumably, it's one of the closest comparables to and, Twitter.
0: And so is Facebook. I mean, so Snapchat, I believe, is worth like $40 billion right now. Mm-hmm. So people are saying, like, there's just no way that... Twitter is worth whatever the price was, forty-five billion or right. um, whatever. But yeah, so Facebook's getting hit as well based on the news of that Snapchat. And then you know, here's Twitter, and uh, it's it's at thirty-six dollars nineteen cents. The deal was for what forty-four billion. Um, okay. uh, have you ever seen a situation like this before, where so what's the buyer? The buyer does not want to actually like move forward with something that they signed off on. Twenty-eight point nine billion. Okay. Um. So, was it like fifty dollars? Yeah,
1: I mostly because of financial conditions. But this is a different example. But yeah, mostly financial conditions, difficulty, and get that it no longer makes sense financially to um put the deal together. So, what does he do? He just pays a billion and leaves? I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we'll see what happens. But uh, same thing I said at the last time we did the podcast. The issue is, you know what bargaining power does twitter have in this situation and that's probably why the price the spread is so big is in large part that if the deal doesn't happen the expected loss that that you think you're going to get in this arbitrage situation is very large So it's not so much even necessarily if the probability of the deal going through is going down all that much. It's that the comparables that you're trying to use as for how far the stock would drop might be a lot bigger, Mm -hmm. right? Because if this deal drags on for a long time, say Activision, Microsoft drags on a really long time, and then all other stocks in that group get re-rated, then you can have very big declines, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's lots of tech companies for which you'd assume that you might drop 30% more than you had expected before if the deal doesn't go through so that's not totally illogical that you could have such big spreads because it's it's the magnitude of the loss uh not so much the probability that the deal won't go through although here there's obviously real doubt about the deal going through too because mm-hmm. he may not want to do it if he's paying a really
0: inflated price for mm-hmm. it. um okay so let's jump into it um uh pull up quick fs markets like i said are off about 20 percent year to date so the only caveat I asked for people was to only give companies that I guess you could reasonably underwrite as being undervalued. We'll see if that holds true. It well, does for the first one. It does for the first one. And we've talked a little bit about Citigroup. Mm-hmm. We've talked about financials. I think financials are pretty cheap. Warren Buffett, or I mean, From presumably at somebody yeah. at Berkshire is uh buying Citigroup. Any we might thoughts buy on a Citigroup? A lot
1: more. I wouldn't be surprised yeah,
0: if here price earnings 5.6 times price to book 0.5 times return on equity 10-year median returns of 6.8 percent it's a 102 billion dollar company
1: yeah so here we have it we don't have the tangible book and stuff but here we have it like half of book value or something like that according to CookFS. um i think jp morgan's long-term target is it wants to earn a 17 percent return on tangible equity so would know that if what exactly their target is but it's something like that and uh so obviously, when you have peers that think that they can earn you know high teens uh, percentages or even just double digit percentages, then uh stock like this would be attractive. uh, we could go to Bank of America because you might get a feel for so there's city, what Bank of America looked like when Buffett was buying into it. so it looked a lot more like city um the, well, it doesn't show the price here and stuff, but it had a, it it would be similar in terms of book value then mm-hmm. to what city is now. Um, so things improved a lot there with Buffett or they, they improved somewhat there. Um, and it wasn't necessary for them to improve much more than they did, um, for that stock to work out well. So you have a sort of similar situation. I don't know if, uh, I want to say the city's franchise in the U S is anywhere near as good as Bank of America's, but it's so much cheaper than, than peers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you like JP Morgan? Um, I, I do like JP Morgan if you're going to buy a very large bank. I think the prices that you're getting on very large banks aren't necessarily as good as somewhat smaller banks um, because I think they're the highest quality somewhat smaller banks are actually uh, capable of earning higher returns than the very largest banks in the US. I would be surprised if the very largest banks in the US are capable of earning
0: returns as good as some of the best regional and smaller banks. Do you think we're back at like 2020 low valuation numbers for some banks? yeah these are low valuations yeah mm-hmm. um i just this is feeling like deja vu i mean back to 2020 when we talked about bank of america i mean you're right if i if memory serves right i believe it was like basically what citigroup was trading at like on a price to book basis yeah i remember and, it being very cheap and um
1: i think that we also have a unusual situation in that it's very rare what we've seen so far this year to have um, large increases in um, treasury yields at the same time that you have decreases in bank stock values. That very, very rarely happens. They usually move more together. So that is, uh, I should say, inverse. So as people are selling down treasuries and their yields are going up, uh, people would be buying bank stocks and vice versa. And the reason for that is that generally um, they believe that higher yields are, are a benefit to banks.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, usually you see financials participate, like when energy takes off when the market starts to get volatile or all these different things uh, that's presently going on. And financials just haven't really participated at all. And
1: one possible reason for that is that you're having increases in yields at the same time that you're having expectations for slower growth. Recession, sure. Right, recession. So that's somewhat unusual because normally you have increasing yields at a point in which growth is seen as being too strong um and so the two kind of go together that way you don't usually see this it has happened before um it probably maybe three times or something from the 70s through the 80s there were several recessions at which um yields were rising into each one and progressively higher yields on each recession yeah
0: so Citigroup though you like it as a snap
1: judgment um i think that it's cheap i don't know if i would do a basket or what uh you know it's a huge company if you need to put billions of dollars into uh bank stocks it seems very logical that Berkshire would do this um it does seem a lot cheaper obviously than um jp morgan and uh bank of america i haven't seen, looked at wells fargo recently but you know those sorts of banks what would
0: the thought process be to you know underwrite it at like a price to book of at least one or close to it right if they could earn double digit returns on equity Mm -hmm. in the future
1: which would be i'm sure their hope that they can get to that and with higher um Interest rates. Interest rates. That seems very possible. I mean, you can see what the net interest margin is. You should be capable of earning decent returns with that. I mean, when we do like pre-tax pre-provision earning stuff, it should be pretty high because you can see over the last 10 years, their net interest margin averaged 3.5%, I think it says there. Mm -hmm. And yet their return on equity was, what was the average return on equity? 6.8%. That's very bad. So usually your return on equity, we could pick some other bank, but usually return on equity, your net interest margin. Times two is not going to be your return equity like what we're seeing here. So if you pick, uh, you know, pick Frost, for instance. Net interest margin is 2.8%, uh, so it's lower than City, but uh, return equity is 10%. This is their average of the last 10 years. So you can see that's, what, over three times. Um, so that's a significant difference, and I'd say that's usually going to be the case. That's uh, pretty normal. That you're going to have a much better return oh. on that. than Yeah. So, and we can see different reasons why that's happening with Citi. One is um, large provisions for losses um, throughout the period. And um, Citi had a really bad experience with the financial crisis. And some of that may have lingered for a very long time in the period that we're looking at. Citi also has a lot of stuff that's not in the U.S. Um, and it also is involved in some businesses that aren't purely um, net interest margin driven stuff. But so
0: is J.P. Morgan, for instance. But you like Citigroup. I like the price yeah yeah you like the price you like smaller banks but if you had to buy a large bank you would like the or price. even just a large stock i don't know what other hundred billion isn't
1: that market cap yeah, billion? i don't billion. know what's a hundred billion dollar size is that cheap mm-hmm. what else is there it's a hundred
0: billion and that cheap i can't think of it mm-hmm. into a rising rate environment uh next company QDEL, healthcare equipment and supplies company um Applications for infectious diseases, cardiology, thyroid, women's, and general health, eye care. So uh, um, I really have no idea where to even start with this company.
1: Company um, markets, direct sales, use in physicians' offices, hospitals, okay, reference laboratories, universities, okay. Um, it's a lot of different products that seems to be described mm-hmm. there, yeah. Uh, there's some tests we can see there. Yeah. So a bunch of it is testing.
0: We don't know how much of that. Some of it is pretty basic stuff. And and in 2020, they had a 210% growth in revenue. And then. Ah, uh, so you know, did they is this do COVID it, related did do or did they acquire COVID something related? Well, some
1: of the specimens. So what they're talking about here, it could be something related to that. Yeah. Infectious diseases, human viruses. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, Including respiratory and other things, herpes they mentioned, for instance. But, um, hmm. So let's look at what yeah, they, they look were doing
0: at their there. operating profit in 2020.
1: A billion. Mm, so that is a bit of a problem. So we're t- at 40 times pre-tax profits before COVID. Yes. So I can't really evaluate the stock. Mm-mm. I mean, you're you're looking cheap based on results since COVID, but this company has no history. Of particularly strong uh, EBIT that I can see going back to the early 2000s. So it's all based on 2020 on. Although it was not a small business in 2019. I mean, a $500 million Mm -hmm. revenue, it just wasn't. And it wasn't bad in terms of the operating profit, right? So your margin was almost 20%. Uh, It had been 20% in 2018, too. That's what the market cap was in 2018. It was definitely a
0: decent business back then, but it's probably a lot cheaper. I would have put a a billion dollar valuation. It was was 1.4 billion.
1: Yeah. So can't tell because something happened, you know, in the last two years that's changed things a lot. Uh, If it goes completely back to what it was before, it's too expensive, Mm -hmm. right? But if it goes halfway back, it might not quite halfway back, let's say, uh, or it takes a little while to get halfway back to what it was, then it might be appropriately priced. But, you know, also the enterprise value it's telling us is only $3 uh, billion. So... I, um, yeah, halfway back, it would not be too expensive, probably. So if you can keep at least half of whatever they've gained here, um, then it might be a cheap stock, but you have to probably keep at least half of the bump
0: of whatever that is of the last two years. Hmm. Let's see. Love sales growth, good gross margins, a balance sheet, no long-term debt. Picker Love, the Love Sack Company,
1: oh. Big Bean Bags. Are you, are you familiar? Yeah. yeah. Uh. I
0: had a, I had one called Monster Sack. Is it like a knockoff? It's a knockoff a, a version, yeah. I don't remember. I mean, I asked her for my birthday when I was like 13. Um, I thought it was so cool that I remember when I got it, I just slept on it for like three days.
1: Now is this one that sells through malls as part of do. what it does? They okay. do, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. The Love Sack Company designs, manufactures and sells furniture. Um, actually the one in Frisco, Mm -hmm. has a lovesack retail operation stonebriar stonebriar yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as of january 30th 2022 the company operated 146 showrooms Uh, and markets its products primarily through Mm lovesack.com as well as showrooms at top tier malls lifestyle centers kiosks okay um uh, so let's start with did covid drive
1: higher sales of this product no it was growing pretty fast before then mm -hmm. and on bigger numbers, was growing about the same rate. Yeah. COVID, yeah, mm-hmm. It was not
0: profitable, however, before COVID. It was not, no. In fact, it wasn't Is this one of those companies 2020? that was trying to reach scale? What's going on here? We got price earnings 10 times, EBITDA free cash flow 20 times, gross profit, the 10-year median margin of 54.6%, mm-hmm. which it's kind of well, it should be. hung yeah, around you know, there. Like a yeah.
1: mattress company, yeah, mm-hmm. that same sort of thing. It shouldn't be an expensive product to sell on a gross basis, but your operating margins are often poor until you get enough scale. That's the hard thing. Um, Let's see, EV to sales 0.7 times. Mm. I mean, you basically have to keep the margins you have now. Mm -hmm. So it's cheap if you keep the margins you have now and grow sales at all. It's reasonable to cheap, depending on how fast you grow. But if your margins are not as good as they have been just for the last year, then you're yeah a lot of uh, stock issuance mm-hmm. all right let's see what the share counts look like can you do that in uh yeah yep hmm you gone from 13 million shares to 16 million yep oh you were down at 11 in 2019 mm-hmm. so actually you went up that's interesting Hmm.
0: yeah let's look at cash flow statement could this fall under like the home improvement trend through covid it could. But it was showing decent revenue growth. It was showing good growth before then, and it's yeah. not a particularly large company. I feel like this company's been around for a good, this brand itself has been around. And it, for it says a, it's been around since the
1: 90s, but it was selling yeah. very little uh, just, you know, in 2016 that mm-hmm. we can see. So negative cash flow from operations each year through 2020. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you really had to hit some sort of inflection point. That's some big deal now. Um, And the major increase, by the way, that happened in 2022 and trailing 12 months is that they worked through probably inventory. We don't know. You know, this doesn't tell us, but they had a major, um, uh, I should say, sorry, 2021, uh, that they had the change in inventory. um, And then they would have done even better this past year. In fact, on an income basis, they probably did do better. But um, let's see. He said so, no long-term debt, but they will have leases. That's true. Yeah. Um, right. Something's booked under that. That's a capital yeah, leases. Capital leases yeah, yeah. Ninety-seven million. Um, But not a problem at all, Mm -hmm. given the current assets. I mean, so just so everyone knows, like the current assets here says is 225, total liabilities 215. If current assets cover total liabilities, you're in a very good position. Mm -hmm. Especially if you, uh, I should say, if you have, you know, some sort of free cash flow, at least positive cash flow from operations. So certainly for the last few years, this doesn't look like it presents any credit problems. Um, The reason why you see high PP&E in 2022 is presumably a change in accounting for the capital leases, because that's why you see the capital leases appear down there. So, the balance sheet didn't really grow that much. It's just a change in how they accounted for it this last year um,
0: yeah, micro cap four hundred and fifty seven million yeah, what's the share turnover? right? but it's not low yep seven hundred thirty nine percent two point four three percent so not for the week of uh not no. for those with weak stomachs uh yeah, the sucker probably moves around a lot Let's yeah. See.
1: But look, if it's it's not a thing that I'm good at judging what the next trends are going to be and whether this trend is going to continue and stuff like that. I, um, yeah, and it came public, I guess, at not a low price because we're not. I mean, it's come down it's grown a lot it's mm-hmm. at a low price today right what is it 10 times earnings what is this mm-hmm. yeah yep, 10 times so Tra- trailing 10 times trailing earnings okay but uh but you're not that far different from your uh, not that far above your uh initial price that you went public at it seems if that's
0: right the chart so how would you be looking at this would you be doing like an, a three year average on well i guess i mean operating profit i'd be comparing it, it to negative. other
1: companies like this and then trying to figure out um i don't even know like a good comp well to this company it's not a bad eh, there's good and bad aspects to this it, i am worried that it seems a little potentially um one is the brand really strong enough because it is easy to have knockoffs of these things obviously yeah but two there are large economies of scale um and i think people underestimate how good a business well they're not damn furniture cheap. is not a bad business no in fact look at this a thousand dollars for right but this, and then they also sell other furniture as well okay but type in uh lovesack cheaper or something like that cheaper lovesack let's see yeah that's what i would do i mean that's like what what's the, what's does. the
0: brand with love sack thing, you know? so
1: what did google suggest you? yeah love
0: sack cheaper alternative uh-huh um yeah look at it, they have one that's for 54 bucks 55 dollars on amazon i mean sure right. it may not be as so, comfortable, but i mean come on this that's is that's why you have
1: the showrooms to see how comfortable it is because an issue with this is like um the ultimate sack like i bought glasses one time from a company that sells glasses online and it's warby stores. parker we won't say the name of it because nice. i have to say something negative about it um it was a lot cheaper than glasses i've got in the past uh it, it was not a good use of money.
0: Really? Because no. I've, always, I've always given my father mm-hmm. credit because he's been talking about Warby Parker mm-hmm. for like 10 plus years mm-hmm. of how much of a scam it is to buy glasses at the eyeglass store and stuff like that. And he right. would always use Warby Parker. And then obviously they went public and stuff like that. But I always give him credit because I swear he's been talking about Warby Parker forever.
1: Yeah. So it, it depends on what works for you, whether it's, you know, any, any of these um, products, how much you want to s- spend on it. Uh, that's so sad that L3. warby parker killed your glasses experience because now you never wear glasses i never wear glasses well the glasses that i wore were quite expensive glasses um but the uh i wore um what are they called oh the um you know they're the ones that are the it's a different kind of frame that they use there's don't they're, they, they don't sell through the major chains and things i can't remember the name of it now but it's um a totally different frame thing which makes the frames very expensive but uh it feels like you're not wearing glasses that's why you wear those but the warby parker ones no they they weren't so good the ones that I got there but um so yeah so then didn't use them and of course it's, it's a waste of money that way um the issue here is that some of these these are not bad categories for furniture these are good categories for furniture but You do worry with this the same that I worried when someone was talking to me about like Under Armour and, and companies like that, right? Mm -hmm. They had a product that was very successful in certain categories that can be copied a lot by others, um, and maybe easier to sell. Um, so you have to transition it into some sort of brand that's successful. So like Under Armour can't just say, okay, we have this, uh, apparel thing where our technology, our product is better. And then you can coast on that because other retailers, can basically reproduce a lot of what you're doing a few years later. It's the same problem that a Hunter Douglas has or that razor companies have or whatever, a few years down the road, you can have something that's as good as what the other company was offering a few years ago, but you could have it at either a lower price or a lot of times it's not a lower price, even that's the most important thing. It's just much wider distribution, mm-hmm. right? So you can widen out the market so much if you can have a lovesack uh, impersonator, uh, a substitute um, at Walmart and sure. at Nebraska Furniture Mart and at whatever that people might go to. Um, so it, it does. It could be a little more, um, I'm not sure if you can build a brand as well here as you would in mattresses, that as durable a brand, you know? Um, so, but a lot why of the economics that? should be similar.
0: Why do you think that is?
1: Like, why do you think you could I build think it's a hard to pay and... too much for a good mattress um i think it's very pot you're not going to buy a bed and not use it yeah you could be to rationalized too
0: you're like a, you sleep whatever it is half your life
1: so yeah people spend important. too little on mattresses mm-hmm. you know it's a, you would think that they would spend It's just too much of an upfront yeah. Thing, and that's why financing is such an important part of it because once you do the financing, you say, "Oh, you're going to pay it off
0: for five years, and I'm going to spread it out for you, and I'm
1: going to." I got a ghost bed.
0: It. I got a ghost bed, and it was, I think, zero percent over twelve months. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, of course. Why wouldn't I do that? Yeah.
1: So I have to drive all the sales that way because people are so reluctant to make the big upfront purchase. Um, I don't know if it's a great product or not. I'm I would just be worried a little bit more that it could be. Um, uh, I guess what I would worry about is that it could become that people buy a product like it that's not from the company Mm -hmm. and think of it as being similar to the company that's was kind of my point about under armor um i'm if they develop the brand so that it's like a brand like nike right then you can have a lot of success on the basis of the brand but a lot of times i think they just mean certain athletic wear that is in the style of under armor and that they lost a lot of sales to that different places um that i had a lot of the same features and i think you know that's obviously possible here yeah look at the the knockoffs i mean 289 bucks but we haven't tried these out and we don't know if the knockoffs are terrible uh you know there are categories where of course where the knockoffs are just uh, a waste of money compared Mm to the real thing um but i do think that um there's probably some people who buy these things and then don't actually end up getting a lot of use out of them yeah sure just because it doesn't fit into their lifestyle and however you know they're they're doing it which is not gonna happen with a mattress it's not gonna happen with eyeglasses for mm-hmm. most people you know um you may ha- end up having to go and, and buy another one not long from now because you end up not liking it but you kind of can justify it mm-hmm. you know uh
0: coin coinbase have you looked at this company at all um for crypto? N- not really, no. I think it's, let's
1: see. I'm right more well, familiar with the stock than the company probably. Yeah,
0: a lot of people talk about it because it's trading on a TTM basis, very low. Mm-hmm. But it's going to be different in the future, though. Yeah, that, because if I remember, the right. The raising capital.
1: Yeah, what I remember that concerned me about this company, and, and this is, I really don't know this company well. There was some absolutely stunning number of people that they had hired during the year that yeah. were uh like just in the last year or something like the number of employees at this company was very surprising to me can you find the number of employees do you think somewhere let's see if it's on it hasn't updated yeah Uh, it's not gonna tell us there i don't think look at that share turnover yeah that's crazy yeah so it's turning over its shares 10 uh the c
0: the ceo he bought recently bought like a hundred million dollar house in california oh really yeah
1: 100 million dollars well you i mean if you got some stock in the company right and if you're able to sell some stock which i yeah. don't know that that's how we funded it but um so we could look we at their there's because this, this was once a very large market cap stock right oh yeah yeah,
0: yeah. i mean it, it, let's see what it's at right now it is 17 billion and it came public at 300 dollars a share ish okay got.
1: so it was you know and we're at 66 times this year. yeah it was yeah. more than
0: six times this yeah Let's see, number
1: of employees. I was surprised by how many uh, uh, employees they seem to have added within just the last year or so. Um,
0: I mean, it's hard too when um, crypto is completely, not completely, but it's definitely. Yeah, so hiring, oh, here we go. This is what I was talking about, expansion. Okay, so I'll read it. During the first quarter of 2022, we made good progress on our product development, highlighted by the beta launch of Coinbase NFT in April 2022, growing adoption of Coinbase wallet, expansion of our staking offering through the addition of Cardano and hiring over 1200 full time employees who help us build the future of crypto. So they hired 1200 additional people in the first quarter of 2022.
1: Right, that's one quarter. Holy smokes, <laughs> that's what I I meant. So it's it is an incredibly profitable company, or it was. Um, if there's like quarterly numbers, they made an incredible amount in one quarter for a company this early in its history. Um, but I was alarmed by the increase in expenses, uh, like in terms of just hiring a lot of employees. You know, we were talking about you know does Amazon have too many employees or too much warehouse
0: space or whatever. This okay. This says we have significantly expanded our operations in recent years, both in terms of employee headcount as well as the number of customers. For example, we have grown from 1,249 employees as of December 31st, 2020, to 3,730 employees. Right. So as of December 31st, 2021. And then they just expanded they're, they're again. Expanding again. Yeah.
1: So even if we just use the one year Oof. number, that means that almost two out of every three employees are new within the last year. Right. And it's more than that because we know they hired even more after that point. So a huge percentage, it was kind of like what I was saying about the Walmart thing, like it just seemed at that Walmart that every employee was new. And that's because there's lots of churn and all the quitting and all that kind of stuff, I'm sure. But this is an extreme example of that. This is what it looks like at some startup. But the scale of it is huge. I mean, when you're in the early stages of some startup, okay, we had, you know, you go from having five employees to 15 or something. Mm-hmm. But this is going from having 1,300 to over 4,000, you know, now that we know the latest numbers is closer to 5,000. Um, that just seems like uh, the possibility is there for uh contraction in the margin and all that kind of stuff for even, uh, and we know also like things, there's been some negative changes on the other side of the business, but even putting that aside- Like in the crypto market yeah, yeah, but even putting that aside, this didn't seem, sound to me like a company that was ready for a big t- decline in their market. Right. Ready to survive it and um, to come out on the other side Uh, just because they didn't seem I mean, it's a very high fixed cost sort of business uh, or I shouldn't I should say it's a very revenue. Additional revenue is very profitable in this kind of business, just like OTC markets Mm -hmm. or any of those things. But you have to be careful not to grow your um, expenses too fast because if you grow, it becomes like a dot com company where they grew their expenses too fast and their revenue would double. But they'd report an even bigger loss because they were anticipating already that and they were anticipating that they would keep having things going well in the stock stuff uh, you know the other thing is like with all these employees did some people think they were getting stock let's say how's the morale, morale
0: at the company when stuff like that happens i mean and right. to, for people watching right december 2021 revenue was uh 2.5 billion and they had operating profit of 922 million um and then when you know operating leverage works the other way as well um in march they posted 1.1 billion of revenue and an operating profit loss of 554 million another way to and look they also diluted a ton they're yeah. raising equity all these different things another
1: way to look at this is that in under a year and a half revenue at one point went up um it went about what 13 times see it was about 186 billion does it say in june 2020 quarter uh where are we at? June 2020. 2020? Yeah. 186 million. But then December 2021, this is a quarterly number. <laughs> it was at 2.5 billion. Yeah. Uh so you know that's that's a big increase. It's a probably a bigger increase than the increase in the number of uh, employees and all that. And act and you can see it drops down beautifully to gross profit as there's little contraction in the um the gross margin. It was still 80% or something mm-hmm. like then. But I, I obviously can't. Make a judgment on a company that can increase 10 times or more in revenue in a period of like a year or two. The gr- It's just how do you even manage a company that's growing that fast? And, you know, all your employees are new all the time and and all of that. And how do you have any idea of what your expenses are going to be and how bad your cash burn is going to be? We could look at a cash flow statement to get some idea, but I think we're going to see very different quarterly, yeah, um, cash uh, generation. So, you know, you went from uh, – let's just take the last three quarters for instance you generate 300 million in cash flow from operations most of which was actually taken up by stock comp uh, but that's fine um so putting that aside as if you could just issue stock um you generated you know 300 million that then increases to almost three billion quarter over quarter Right, quarter over quarter. Not, we're not talking year over year no, or whatever. No. Quarter over quarter. quarter over quarter. Good lord! And then, um, so a you know, a move in a quarter that is bigger than what ninety-five percent of companies experience in a decade. Right, mm. that, that's what we're talking about. And then a move in the opposite direction, which also fits that, which is then we go for cash flow from operations goes negative, eight hundred thirty million uh, in the most recent one. And I don't know how you manage a company like that it just seems very difficult to manage and it was sort of like what we're talking about with peloton and all that it you know are you prepared when there is a downturn or something um for that downturn we talked about over the counter markets which is you know the extremely mild version of this but I mentioned a little bit in that, you know, it's in their release um, where they talk about their earnings and everything. It doesn't really show up in the quarterly results if you just look on QuickFS, but we had talked for a while about this non-professional user growth in the business, which is not the biggest part of the business really, but it grew very rapidly during um, the COVID stock craze for over-the-counter things and all sorts of different things and just like rapid trading of things and all that. And a lot of people probably hadn't been trading stocks a lot previously. And I, they were down fifty percent in terms of number of users of that, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah. The professionals are never going to change by fifty percent like that.
0: um But we didn't underwrite that going forward as being like a normalized thing. No, what I'm saying though
1: is their earnings were about the same with a fifty percent drop in one part of the business. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Fifty percent drop in terms of like the there was a boom. mania. You're yeah. right. Speculative mania drove some higher earnings but when that speculative boom the first part now there'll be more there's more to come yet because that we haven't seen them report all the periods where the speculative part has declined but for instance yeah you can see there they they reported revenue growth they shrank one percent right mm-hmm. and um operating margin declined from 42 percent to 34 percent um you had a decrease in earnings but year over year the decrease in earnings was not very not big. like coinbase yeah it Just was especially about on in cash flow basis yeah so you had barely any any change that way um with a huge decline in that what i'm saying is that a different business model has a similar decline and coinbase presumably will be larger than that but let's say that wasn't true um it can have sudden declines in in revenue obviously
0: i mean so if you were a bag holder in this company i mean they'll never see valuations i mean i don't want to say never say never but i well, mean if things are normal yeah happened, but if mania. things are normal i mean 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. My initial thought when I was looking at this company was if you bought it at the IPO, maybe you'll make your money back in 20 years. I I, I mean, what are you betting on another I
1: speculative mania? On, to be honest, I think it's We like that. We well, I, said get <laughs> I said maybe. Market dynamics, but <laughs> it's very possible this company will burn cash and never generate profits again. Because that's the issue when I talk about over-the-counter markets versus other things. Over-the-counter markets, if there have been significant competition... It's not, oh, that will slow down your growth. It's that you would no longer be the only market for everyone to use. And it would shift you become the MySpace to Facebook. Mm-hmm. It's not, oh, MySpace grew a little bit slower. It's that it imploded. Um, and, and that's going to be the case in a lot of these sorts of things. That's why you were earning such ridiculous profits in some periods. Um, if you become the place. Uh, It's a winner takes all sort of, usually in these businesses, winner takes all sort of advantage that you have. And sometimes the speculative mania can fuel an initial advantage that you get that you can then maintain in future periods. But actually, I think we've talked about this before, uh, just last week. Uh, Too rapid a growth in certain markets is a problem because it invites too much competition, too much potential for fragmentation, and actually a more consolidated situation will be better for you longer term. If your market had been growing slowly and you have the sort of advantage that a stock exchange has or something, most of the stock exchanges in the world, for instance, and commodity exchanges, they had fairly slow growth fueling them. And they at times benefited from big speculative um, advantages, but you wouldn't have wanted to found a stock exchange. In 1995, that was going to be all tech stocks and things. Yes, you would have made a lot of money for a while, but you would have invited too much competition. That that didn't happen because it was already such a well-established market, right? So you already want to be that marketplace that has that advantage. Um, there are though it, situations where that hasn't proven true. Like for a long time, to- I mean, like eBay has consistently made money since it was started. Now it obviously lost market share that it's not that big an online retailer versus what that market became. But it never fell into a situation where it wasn't making a lot of money. It basically got founded at the right time, made a lot of money, and continued to make a lot of money. It stopped growing. But uh, usually that's not how it ends. You know, usually are either in a reasonably slow growth but strong position like over-the-counter markets or I don't know what other publicly traded like stock exchange things there are that you could compare it to, but you'd see the same sort of thing. Um, That their profits and stuff grow uh nicely and their earnings per share but it's they're actually not rapid growth there's very there's not a lot of rapid growth in normal periods in terms of number of users there's not a lot of rapid growth in terms you know professionals and stuff it's not growing that, you know
0: I think it would be easy to say well I mean put yourself in their shoes Jeff what if you were experiencing unprecedented amount of growth like that but then you look at a company like OTCM and I mean sure like certain parts of their business aren't going to benefit from the speculative mania anymore but I mean they still manage through it I would say quite well my guess Uh, you know, I don't know. Like you talk about like Amazon, right? They're going on a hiring freeze. They're laying off people. They're getting rid of warehouse space. Mm -hmm. It's easy from the outside looking in to be like, oh, you guys overgrew during the growth or you extrapolate that growth forward too much or whatever. But there are companies that do it right. I mean, then you look at like company like Peloton where it's just, Uh, you know that's just it's not a good situation
1: well there's also often no opportunity to differentiate yourself and survive so i'm not saying it's the wrong strategy you have to grow as fast as you possibly can probably to survive at all um you know i've never said that uber lyft have the wrong strategy um whether they'll ever make money for people to to justify the amount of capital that's been burned in the past but i don't think that slimming down with a narrow focus that you're going to be more profitable when you know that there's a competitor who is going to achieve a scale that you can't Mm -hmm. um unless you're able to have some sort of agreement between the two of you um to limit growth there's no workable way around it you know it's a benefit to your customers but it's a harm to the two of you that you're trying to grow as fast as you can it happens in other industries too though like you know cruise lines and stuff happen there uh, early days of airlines you know when you as soon as you had deregulation it became a factor um there was every incentive to grow very rapidly to grow, to take on debt to grow rapidly because you would fall behind others um even when it wasn't just about it wasn't just these companies were trying to grow their earnings per share or their size or whatever really rapidly it was also understanding that if my competitors merge with each other if they grow faster than i grow they're going to have advantages that i'm going to lack right you know if you're western union and MoneyGram, one of you can't decide that they're going to pursue growth all out and the other one doesn't do it at all because if that continues for a decade or something one of you is going to have much worse economics than the other one because mm-hmm. of the scale involved same thing here there can't be a hundred different um uh, there there aren't going to be a lot of different beneficiaries of the crypto stuff if if you're doing the same exact thing. Now, there might be other functions that you can provide, and I don't know a lot about that because I don't know enough about crypto, but there may be specialized functions of doing different kinds of things, but um, you're not going to see a lot of... It, it is the kind of thing that ends up with a winner-takes-all type situation. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't look tremendously expensive. Um, it's just that... I don't, when something's not durable, you don't know. You know, um, if we see EB to sales is two, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. And the operating margin, of course, would be 20% or higher with a successful business model. So there's no doubt that it's cheap if it was able to maintain anywhere near the same level of revenue. We know some things because, like, this is such a national and international phenomena that, like, we know that although... crypto has been around a while a huge amount of the people involved are very recently involved in terms of uh, um, the population right Mm -hmm. so it went from being something that was incredibly fringe to being something that's mentioned uh, that that literally if you know if you had if you um, prompt someone to uh, to ask them you know what is crypto You'll get a response, whether right or wrong, from a huge portion of the general population, Uh, and that was not the case only a few years ago. So that's a really tough development. Mm -hmm. It's probably just like it's the market growth is too rapid, and when you have really rapid market growth, you tend to have extinction of almost all the companies involved. Someone survives and makes a lot of money, but if the failure rate is close to one hundred percent, you know most of them all fail. I mean. Look at those growth rates. Nothing that grows a thousand percent. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. Nothing that's growing its revenue by a thousand percent for any period of time It is a market that... Is a monopoly? I mean, it's not a... Mar- there, there are no... Uh, it's not easy to have a lot of survivors when you have that kind of thing happening. And also notice that you went... In terms of the problem with this is like buying it now and then thinking, well, if I'm right, then I'll stick with it. And if I'm wrong, I'll get out at the first sign that I've changed my uh, opinion on it. Um, It went from growing at 300% to shrinking by 35%, right? Mm -hmm. Well, there wasn't a lot of hint about a slowdown. No. So it's something that you have to watch every week and say, okay, I'm going to predict what the next quarter is going to be. Yeah. So, who knows, but I, I'm i not sure it's a company that's going to be in a great position to survive a downturn. Do you want to look at, like, balance sheet and stuff like that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's not great. Yeah. There's significant issues there. Now, the liabilities are mostly in the form of deferred revenue. Of course, um, presumably that, that rolls off really badly when you have any shrinking in terms of... Um, revenue obviously so it's not a predictable form of float so that flows out but um you know you can you can burn cash for a while here but it it's it's hard to say i mean we know how many employees there are if we kind of run the numbers on thinking about that and what they're if we go to the income statement for quarterly we could get some idea of how bad this can get um yeah so SGA, for instance, ooh, and R&D, look at that. They're spending 2 billion dollars a year on R&D at this rate right now.
0: Yep, annually. And they yeah. only have 6 billion in cash. And quarterly it was 571 million and uh for SGNA it was 614 million. Right. So you have 3 years
1: of R&D on hand in
0: cash. Right. Um so you know, you have a very significant SGNA and stuff. You know when you we t- we spoke about like Tesla, we've spoken about Coinbase, all these companies, it's like at the end of the day it's still a car manufacturer. Or at the end of the day, you could look at like other brokerage firms and stuff like that. I well, mean,
1: Coinbase could- Can it be like a sanity check? No, Coinbase is, a, you know, the business model that you have the potential to achieve is astronomical. If you really believe that um, uh, cryptocurrencies are going to be the uh, a giant asset class permanently, and that Coinbase is going to dominate, right? Then we know that, I mean, operating margins of 50% are possible,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: right? Yeah, it's huge. And so you can justify, we were talking about price to sales with um, the, uh, was it Evolution Gaming? What was Evolution? Yep, Evolution. Okay. So um, this is the kind of thing that could justify if you said like what potentially in a model could you come with a price to sales? There's almost no limit to it. When it's growing that fast and you know that this is an industry that can have tremendous margins. And in fact, they'd already achieved tremendous margins in quarter after quarter. Um, it's like Facebook. You know, when we're talking about Facebook. Like, and it's not, you might not be able to predict how big Facebook would get and how successful it would be. But you could say that there's a point it could get to where it's a very, very valuable company. Tesla's harder. And I don't, Facebook and Tesla aren't radically different Um valuations in the uh, market i mean they're radically different valuations i should say they're not radically different market caps and things like that but i think it would have been very a lot harder to come up with the idea that uh, tesla was going to be valued like this in the market Mm -hmm. even if i told you what its results were going to be it would be hard to come with a model five six seven years ago that said okay here's what the numbers are going to be what's it going to sell at yeah you wouldn't have predicted that it was going to sell at these multiples i think that would have been hard to think that at this size, it's going to be valued at more than 10 times sales, right? Which at
0: Toyo the beginning is, of the year, valuation was way worse as well, or way higher.
1: Yeah, Toyota's is not valued at 10 times sales, you know? So, and we're, we're at a size when we're talking about being comparable to really big car companies now, or we will be soon. Um, so that's really hard to um, come up with those price to sales type things. doesn't mean they can't pivot and figure out some other business that's adjacent that makes them a lot of profit and stuff too but um because some others have done that you know amazon and stuff but Mm. yeah i I think coinbase obviously had a very attractive story to tell in terms of like compared to other companies and what they did you know obviously that's that's true i mean we talk about over-the-counter markets and obviously it's the potential and everything for them is a way better business, and that's a little tiny niche business. But you can see all around the world all these uh, businesses that are incredibly profitable. So the, it's sort of like fintech stuff that way. Like if you say there's some payment processing thing that's going to come big in the future, you can look at all the big ones now and say, look how profitable they are if mm-hmm. we achieve even bigger scale. So front door.
0: Yep, front door. He says a little interesting since it's almost back at yeah. the same price as during the post-spin drop in late 2018 price of sales. One point three, while HomeServe has received an offer from Brookfield valuing it at two point eight times sales. Yeah, so I wrote up a yeah, a, right I did right above HomeServe, and I did actually look at from Front Door
1: recently because I looked at it when it spun off. Um, Front Door is in the same industry, different country, and and uh, somewhat different business model than HomeServe, but HomeServe is something that I I um, did do a lot of research on, and Front Door is something I looked at. I don't think Front Door's results have been great. Uh, since the spinoff in terms of compared to what i thought they might be capable of achieving so that's
0: tough but the price is obviously not too expensive yeah 1.5 times ev to sales yeah 10 year median margins on the ebit 19 percent mm-hmm. so it has a couple which has declined yeah it has a
1: couple sales channels um and one of the sales channels is not one that I love, which is um, through like realtors basically. So, like getting a home warranty, we could look at the business description, but this is like a home warranty company. So, do they describe what is home service plans?
0: Uh huh. Yeah. The company's home service plans cover the repair or replacement of principal components of approximately 20 home systems and appliances, including electrical, plumbing, water heaters, refrigerators, dishwashers. You get the point.
1: The name that would be familiar to Americans watching cable TV and stuff like that would be American Home Shield. That's the name that they use when advertising directly to the homeowning public. Um, It is a business model I like. And so basically what you do is you pay for this warranty. So your warranty on your, you know, your refrigerator, your dishwasher, whatever. And then you're going to get, uh, pay a flat price, uh, guaranteed sort of price for the service visit. um, Sort of like a deductible, same kind of idea if you were thinking of it as an insurance company. And um, you're going to have to pay that, let's say it's $50 or whatever for that visit. And then otherwise all you do is you pay premiums. You don't have to pay different amounts based on um, the actual uh, parts and labor and stuff like that. That you have, right? Uh, very attractive to market it to um, homeowners, especially uh, older people like it a lot. People on more fixed incomes and things like that, um, and to plan ahead for those sorts of things and to smooth out the expenses and that kind of thing. There's some things I like about it on the supply side, you know, so dealing with the um, uh, dealing with the repair people. That you're gonna have I think there's some nice benefits there and I think there can be good things in terms of improving retention so I think there's good stuff there on the other hand with this industry generally there's always going to be some complaints and that you're selling products that aren't necessary right but that's a typical thing of insurance type things and this is effectively like an insurance company although they don't really present themselves in this description for instance as an insurance company but that's really what they're doing um, and so, you know, there's always a question of whether you're selling coverage and things that people don't need and, and how you're selling it. And so, you always see a lot of critical coverage of companies like Frontdoor and uh, HomeServe. And HomeServe had trouble in the UK with a regulator and things like that. Um, so, it's, it's kind of like when we talk about the title insurance industry, mm-hmm. it has somewhat of a negative um, perception by the public, I'd say. Uh, you can see that gross margin is usually very stable, right? Yep, very stable. But operating margin is less stable.
0: Right. So, what does that tell you? Well... It's a volume-based thing or mm, not a pricing thing? I don't know
1: enough. I haven't been super impressed by the company since it was spun off. I
0: feel like... I think they could do better. Interesting. Because looking at it, you would be, huh. I mean, revenue growth has been kind of been. A I great I consider it considered when it's spun Variance off. Variance in margins yeah. has been decent. I think I like the business
1: model, the industry, they have a strong position in the industry, uh, maybe more than I like the organization at this point. And I don't want to be too critical about the organization. I'm, I'm, there's not stuff that we're talking about that I, I, that's anything that they've done that I, um, in particular that is uh, egregious. It's just that I feel like this could be there. I think there's possibility for better performance than what we've seen so far. I, I do think that. But that's happened with other companies before. There have been points where I've been, like, uh, felt that way about ADT or something like that, that I've liked their position in the industry and stuff, but I didn't always feel like they were um, necessarily making as much money in a given year as Mm -hmm. they were capable of, and, you know, so,
0: you know, that does happen. Um,
1: I do feel this has a strong position in the
0: industry. Would you ever look at this and take the buyout offer for HomeServe of whatever it was, like, two times, and be like, oh, maybe front door at one and a half times or 1.3 times price of sales is looking a little bit cheap. They're very, very similar business models. Mm -hmm. Very similar. Um,
1: However, there are similarities, like I said, to insurance. The similarities to insurance are on the side of marketing stuff and um, customer acquisition costs and retention of customers and how you do that. There are aspects of home service business, for instance, that I liked a lot. Their business in certain countries and certain ways of doing it through partners that they had. Um, I do think that some of the stuff HomeServe did was smarter in terms of the affiliates they were working through and what they were doing. And I think in some cases they had really nice customer economics because of how strong the retention was. Um, you have to be careful to grow in the right kind of way with this sort of company or with any, like I said, like an insurance company, because customer acquisition costs versus your retention and the lifetime value of the customer is very important. And, uh, the, like I said, there's multiple channels here, and I don't think the economics are the same between those channels, and I think there's different things they could do that could be more successful. Um, the big difference between them and HomeServe is how it's marketed. How does HomeServe market? Uh, affiliates. So HomeServe is focused, and they've even did things in the US and stuff. So HomeServe is focused on, um, let's say you have a utility company. Uh, Like a water company is the Mm -hmm. best example. That's the best one you could sign up. But let's say you have all your water company, right? Yep. You add on, so let's say $10 a month to your water bill as a option that you can check. It will be collected as part of that bill. And that's actually getting you coverage through HomeServe. But it's provided by your, what, you know, is your local or national or whatever it is in those countries. They're usually much bigger in those countries. Um, Utility. Like a water company or gas. Uh, Gas is another good one to do. Um, So it's connected in some way to plumbing, appliances, things like that. It's a regular bill you pay all the time. It makes it look smaller because it's a smaller fraction of the bill. It's also more invisible because it's like tacking something onto your monthly mortgage payment or something. It helps with that a lot. Um, whereas marketing by trying to approach people through, say, advertising, like I was saying, like American Home Shield or something like that, I mean, that might be something that like runs ads on Fox News or something like that. Um, that is... You know, okay, but I don't know that the the economics of that in terms of the retention and, and all the psychological aspects of it are as good as what I was talking about with the affiliate marketing. Just backup. how easy yeah. it
0: is to do it like that, too. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, once you're using certain channels, then there's um, you, you may be stuck more in the, those sorts of approaches than other ways that you could do, which is what happens to insurance companies all the time. That's why I keep comparing insurance companies. But selling through agents, selling direct, who you focus on, where you're doing it. Um, I do... I I like it a lot. I mean, I also even like the products economics in terms of what it's offering to the customer. I think that the customer actually, in some cases, is getting peace of mind for a fairly good price. Um, I think in terms of the sort of effect that it has on matching certain people on each side, which is sort of what the service is basically in terms of the economics able to extract from it is by providing work for people on the other sort of guaranteed source of work at a reasonable price for um, the people who are actually providing the labor. And and on the other side, kind of um, capping your potential costs and smoothing them out for the homeowner. I think that those are both really uh, desirable things for each of those groups. And you can capture a fair amount of profit for yourself there by taking out kind of the variability for them and so you're trading that off, t- taking that as a company, you're getting a lot of profit from that. They, in a sense, are giving up the potential to have a lot of profit, but having more uh, um, predictability. And that's often a good business to be able to do that, to provide a more predictable sort of thing to people on both sides here, matching the supply and demand. Um, and in exchange, you're making money off of this and having this network. Um, you know it's very interesting business to me it's definitely an industry i'm very interested in and a company i'm interested in um has higher share turnover and stuff than what we're used to and it's a bit bigger but not huge it's 2 billion market cap mhm yeah 2.4 billion ev if i was looking for companies in a couple billion dollar range it's definitely something i would look at um It's come down a significant amount there. I'm Uh not sure what that's all about um, in terms of why it went up as much as it did and then why it went down as much as it did. Um, Can you look at the, uh, let's see, the, hold on, if you go a little bit higher. um, They have a bit of debt. So let's look at the balance sheet. Let's see how that's progressed since...
0: Yeah, that's what I figured. Yeah, yeah. So it's gone from ten million in two thousand sixteen to six hundred eight million today for for long term debt. Right, and 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 they also short term.
1: They have short term, but that's not where it went. Um, Deferred revenue. Okay. Um, Yeah, because that was an issue in terms of the EV wasn't as attractive at the time of the spinoff as the market cap might make it appear. Um, here, that's, you know, not only that, they have 600 million in long term debt and a little bit short term, but they do have 200 million, it looks like, on cash on hand. Um, can we look at the cash flow? Yeah. Okay. So it was, but but to give an idea, it was kind of leveraged in a sense before in that, uh, as you can see there, it didn't have retained earnings until very recently. So like from a book value perspective and things like that, it would have looked very leveraged. It doesn't have a lot of tangible aspects to it, and it obviously had that. So um, let's see what we have. Um, Yeah, I mean, you can see, as you'd expect, in terms of cash flow from operations versus CapEx, capital light, and predictable. Mm -hmm. In fact, the cash flow from operations is probably more predictable than the income. Uh, Although the income has been fairly, no, the cash flow from operations is more predictable. Yeah. So let's see, your debt on a gross basis, your debt is four times your free cash flow lately, but you've not had worse free cash flow than that before. So four times free cash flow, I can deal with that. That's not a problem. Um, And then also, that's not taking into account the fact that you have cash. So it's even less than that. Um, We're really talking about maybe three, less than three times. Yeah. So I mean and that's in terms of an actual debt to free cash flow not like EBITDA and stuff like Mm -hmm. that so i think it's manageable
0: i I don't see that as a problem and even bought back a little stock right yep so if you 100 million so if you were focusing on companies that were a couple billion you would focus or hone in a little bit on front door learn a little bit more about it yeah i i don't know i mean i mean what are some things that you would want to i don't love the revenue growth that we're seeing
1: the last four years for instance so it's very stable revenue growth that you're having there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not particularly high, given the level of inflation that we've had and everything that happened with COVID and and all of that. Um, and it's really translated into basically no growth in operating profit, right? We're at the same level that we were about five years ago. Yep. So, I mean, it's one thing for your margins to decline. We've seen that with other companies where you have a decline from 20% to 15% or whatever we're seeing here. But to have that decline without being rapid growth, offsetting it, in a capital light business yeah so i guess that i I don't know all the reasons for that and it would be interesting to look at that and to figure out what management's explanations for that are why i mean are you really capable growing 8% a year because when you were growing at that rate your margins have been contracting if your margins are contracting couldn't you grow faster if you're accepting lower margins Mm -hmm. than what you're doing um because like i said it's marketing driven sort of thing you think that you could stimulate more demand you know, more advertising and different kinds of pricing and sorts of ways of doing it um, should be able to drive a lot more people to sign up if you want to. So you think that, you know, it's, it isn't something that's like um, selling groceries or something. There, There's a level of de- you're convincing people for demand for this product. Um, so you're capable of growing faster at different economics for you. Um, so I don't know that I like that we're seeing margins basically margins the last two years or so are significantly lower than what they were in from 2015 to 2017 they're like five percent lower you know that's really significant when you're growing at eight percent so it just makes me think well can you really are you really capable of growing at eight percent because your margins did contract um or does that give some sign that maybe you're not really capable of growing at that level it's like a
0: quality of earnings thing
1: Yeah, which i could live with if that's not the case but you know with any kind of company like this i'd worry that people would look at the growth rate Mm -hmm. and say okay you know this is what they can do or um but again like an insurance type thing you can grow faster if you're willing to advertise in a customer acquisition uh cost sort of way that doesn't make as much sense, and if you're willing to price things differently. So you certainly are capable of faster or slower growth, and sometimes slower growth might be better if the uh, if if it's converting into more profit growth for you. So it's a question of the company having to be realistic about that. Um, as you can imagine, it's all in the operating profit line that the problem is, right? Mm-hmm. So it's all operating expenses that are causing these problems. All operating expenses. Mm-hmm. The gross profit progression is exactly what you would have hoped for. If I was looking at this company when it spun off and thinking forward to today, gross profits proceed exactly like you'd hope for. We can see it each year that way. But you've made, you're making the same sort of operating profit now as you were five years ago and on a lot more yeah. gross profit. You're almost 1.4, 1.5, well, yeah, 1.4, 1.5 times more gross profit than you had before in dollar terms. And yet, operating profit is the same. It's like when we talked about Village and said, so look at the last 10 years, how they've progressed in terms of gross profit and they've converted no more of that mm-hmm. into operating profit. So, so it's expense line stuff. Let's see what we had a lot of requests of. But very interesting company. Uh, I did look at it when it spun off and I would definitely, if I was, uh, if I had to look for things in the couple billion dollar range, I'd definitely look at that front door.
0: Somebody said, um, have you followed up with Points International Oh, at all recently? Mm-mm. They're getting acquired are they so i think if you buy any stock that we sell then it gets acquired It gets acquired mm-hmm. that's
1: yeah we've got if that's true we've gotten at least three i think <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah so, let's see where yeah um where is so it's sore i'm trying to find a pr on it
1: uh can you find it it trades over the no it trades on nasdaq nasdaq yeah so maybe an score. over the count if you go to over the counter markets and then go to news yeah, or disclosures they might have it because yeah. pcom is the ticker in the u.s right yeah let's go canadian company but i believe it trades in the u.s pcom is the ticker you're looking for yep. in the us mm-hmm. yeah
0: pcom right. let's see no news okay disclosure mm-hmm. let's see F- nope six was that recent
1: 516.
0: Let's see what this is. Can they hear that? There's a storm going on. There is a storm. Yes. Yeah, so let's see. After the closed markets, company entered an arrangement agreement. Who is acquiring them? Plus Grade LP will acquire all of the issued and outstanding common shares of the company for $25 a share. Uh, so US $25 a share. Yeah, US okay there you go any thoughts on it and here we are before covid what were
1: they at 15 or something what was their price around then yeah uh uh-huh and then they spiked no even yeah so 10 call it 10 to 15 immediately after COVID, it was like 15 when Mm -hmm. they or it was 17 or something before they announced that stuff um (laughs) yeah so uh well, airlines have recovered a lot. Yes, this so is a yeah. great business model. Huge amounts of deferred revenue, as we talked about. Capital light. Capital light. Generates a ton of cash. If you want to take it over using debt, that will work in anything except if we have another COVID yep. experience, and then you'll be bankrupt. But, uh, but also, I think airlines are willing to work with other companies. And it turned out that people that governments bailed out airlines and all that. Interesting. So you have not looked at that company recently. I've not looked at at Points International recently. What's so? There's no spread on it. No, there's not. It's at. Uh, uh, we should mention and warn though that like if you go to QuickFS, I think we'll give you an idea here. The um, let's see, because QuickFS will have both. Will it? Maybe not. No. Okay. Could you but true it. Points International and let's see.
0: Nothing. Do you have internet? Yeah. Yeah, we do. There's uh, a huge storm going on right now. As we record I, this, oh, a huge there's storm. Probably, there's it's probably, tripping like, some power there's probably like a tornado going on. Our power, our light just went out, but I mean, our <laughs> cameras already turned off. So we're just recording the screen. So we're just gonna keep it going. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't have, I'm, I'm flying dark right now, Jeff. I'm flying blind All in right. the middle of a storm. What happens if we, uh, lo- if you lose power, <laughs> the show goes on, we the have our stuff. We don't lose our goes files. Okay. Yeah, we're good.
1: Um, yeah, so all I was warning about is I believe it has a lot more volume in Canada than the US. Mm-hmm. Do you remember if it does?
0: That's correct, yeah. Or it has a lot more No, it would, it has a uh on it trades in Canada and it trades on the Nasdaq. I okay. think we bought Nasdaq because I thought it had more volume, but I could be wrong about that.
1: Oh, okay.
0: That that might be
1: true. Yeah. I don't I don't remember which does, but just be careful when you're looking it up. It it's um it's unusual for if you see a nasdaq listed stock you're going to think i mean they're asian stocks that are listed on nasdaq but you're going to think that it isn't also since it's not over the counter you're going to figure it's not also listed in canada but it is listed in canada too and so um i think there's a significant difference in like share turnover and stuff like that like some of them may be more actively traded one or the other um so just be aware of that but if that's correct then there's no spread basically right Mm-hmm. you're talking yeah. about 25 bucks a share and it's so they're certain that that deals in growth that is quarter. interesting imagine a couple of years ago if we were saying there's going to be a deal involving an airline points thing and there'll be no spread on that but there'll be huge spreads on video
0: games and yeah uh, on
1: um twitter right mm-hmm. yeah
0: um uh, let's see the rational walk second dva i just spent a week looking at it but i don't own it Alrighty, we are back. We are not flying dark anymore. The internet did go out, but now I'm connected to a phone. Mm-hmm. This is why we need Starlink. That's Elon Musk's thing that shoots up to the satellite. But satellite a satellite. Does it work yeah, around? I don't know how it does in the <laughs> room. I don't know. But okay, we're we're back live. So, Points International. So, they do have one on QuickFS. It's just our internet was down. Um, huge share turnover. Right. But this so, is I think NASAC that's the NASDAQ version. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Um, and so no spread, right? Because no. we said the offer is $25 and this yep. is 24 um, dollars So no spread. Nope. So not an one to arbitrage. So maybe people think there might be a bigger offer coming along or maybe it just seems like a certain deal.
0: Uh, and that was just a recently announced deal? Yeah, it was announced, I think, uh, on the 15th it said, and I thought. I forget. But recently, a couple of weeks we ago. We can look at the ratios
1: if you want on it. So we you get an idea oh, of what's uh, yeah, what going, um, being taken over at. Okay. Right. So
0: uh, revenue is not quite back to where it was before COVID on an annual basis. Nope. Right. So pre-COVID at 2019 was 401 million. 2018 was 376 million. Mm-hmm. And we're currently sitting at 370 million. Right. So on a market cap basis,
1: it's a little over 20 times peak pre-tax profits. Yeah, their, their peak t- pre-tax profits were at 17 million. Um, and then this you know would be more than that uh it'll be 20 some times um but on enterprise value basis obviously a lot less because they have huge amounts of deferred revenue we could go to the balance sheet to show you that that the free cash flow is going to be different when it's growing it's going to generate a lot of free cash flow so you can see total liabilities 90 million but total current assets 126 million and the liabilities are um going to be largely uh actually they show up as accounts payable here let's see Mm -hmm. Mm, okay it's basically a form of deferred revenue, though, so it was float. I, I'm not sure if that's accurate. But yeah, if we go to cash flow, that might give us a better sense. Um, so if you remember, I said they generated 17 million in 2019 of pre-tax, so operating profit. But post-tax, they had 23 million in free cash flow. So after paying taxes and everything, they still generated quite a bit more. Um, like 30% more in free cash flow than in operating profit. So that's the unusual part of this business. If you look at it on like an uh, uh, EV to EBITDA or market cap, like a PE basis, it's not going to look that cheap. If we go to the overview, the PE is not going to be low for years in which, well, it has like no earnings right now. It's, so the PE is 100 or we something. We go pre-COVID though. Right. So, uh, but the peak earnings per share was 54 cents. Yep. A share. So even then you're still talking about, you know nope,
0: 86 cents
1: sure. 86 cents okay so um you're you're still talking about you know 30 sometimes uh um PE, so a very high PE, but on a price to free cash flow basis not nearly as expensive in fact it's in the teens the price to free cash flow even uh, comparing it to the peak before so if you kind of use free cash flow as the more important number then that's what you get now if you ever use ev to free cash flow that's, that's always awesome. going to look incredibly low because your free cash flow is high because of the business model and also your EV is incredibly low because you you have a lot of cash on hand, mm-hmm. right? Because what you, is happening is you're not counting as debt, the deferred revenue, you know, so it's kind of like over-the-counter markets that way, right? When we look up over-the-counter markets, people always say the EV to free cash flow looks very reasonable, um, more so than the PE, and that's the case here. And what do you care about more? Mm-hmm. It depends. The acquirer probably cares more about the EV to free cash flow depending on who the acquirer is. But with the current management team in place and stuff at any of these places, then you're not going to think that they're going to use the uh, enterprise value quite the same way. you know. Um, so to an acquirer, EV to free cash flow is going to matter a lot. Mm-hmm. That's how you're going to think about that. And that could matter a lot with points. Uh, both of them have the potential for a lot of financial engineering. They can take on debt. They can buy back stock. They can do all sorts of things to make the deal more uh, beneficial, like a lot cheaper to someone financing it. All right. So let's look
0: at DVA.
1: Have you looked at this company? Davita Inc. So I've not really looked at Davita nearly uh certainly not at all recently and nearly as much as most people do because of the Berkshire connection.
0: Provides kidney dialysis services for patients suffering from chronic kidney failure. So another healthcare company mm-hmm. Current PE, about 10 times, EV to sales, 1.5 times, 10-year median margins on EBIT, 15%. Uh, currently trading at EV to free cash flow of 11.7 times. Um, gross margins looks like uh, in the ballpark of something that you would be interested in, like the variability of it, very mm-hmm. low variability. Hasn't really jumped very around much. Margin very margin. low operating margin. Very low operating margin, yeah. So from like a factor quantitative perspective this mm-hmm. is something that jeff would be interested in maybe a little bit more revenue growth i mean 10-year k revenue uh, has been 5.6 percent but right. over the past three or four years it's been basically not moving around much at all right but look at earnings per share growth versus yeah. revenue growth yeah but they've been able to improve um gross profit eps operating profit mm-hmm. um during that time
1: mm-hmm. so it looks a lot like a uh, if you're familiar with the testing companies so your companies like your um Lab core or something like that, you know, um uh, very a lot of the economics, the variability, the margins, things like that that we're seeing are very, very similar. And presumably the business is pretty similar, although you're dealing with a much smaller but more consistent um customer base. Because you see they have what, two thousand eight hundred and fifteen dialysis centers? They're yeah. really small. Mm-hmm. And the dialysis centers are only serving two hundred thousand patients.
0: Yeah. Right, serving so approximately
1: 203,000. Yeah. So you're serving way under
0: 100 patients at each center. Um, and operate 339 outpatient dialysis centers located in 10 countries outside of the United States, serving approximately 39,900 patients. Hmm. Okay. Um, so, thoughts on the Vita? Uh, let's
1: look at the free cash flow, uh, cash flow statement to look for capital allocation. What is their approach to
0: share buybacks? They buy back a lot of stock. Mm -hmm. Basically, all of their cash flow or close to it. Uh, Actually, more
1: than their free cash flow, I would say. It's close to their cash flow from operations, to be honest. It's certainly the acquisitions are certainly funded More than their free cash flow. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely more than their free cash flow. So if you're taking 100% of your free cash flow and buying back stock. That's something i understand now we have to look at the income statement to make sure
0: they're really getting the share count down <laughs> and uh let's look at that yeah so shares outstanding in 2012 were 196 million and in 2021 there are 110 million so they've reduced it a pretty good amount
1: right oh yeah on, so on a daily basis that we're looking at there absolutely yeah um so i think that this is a very interesting stock because it is very slow growth. looks like Vericide. Yeah, it's very slow growth in terms of the um, actual revenue numbers. But it looks like you have a predictable capital allocation. And let's look at the balance sheet. Yeah, so there are some issues here. And I thought that this might come up in the balance sheet. Uh, you have a very weak liquidity position very Mm. weak um total liabilities are 14.7 billion right um uh, which is overwhelmingly long-term debt there's some capital leases too 8.7 billion right 8.7 billion in long-term debt you have 462 million cash equivalents there's some other stuff let's take it down say it's 8 billion or something in long-term debt then let's look at cash flow um what was it like two billion yeah in operations mm-hmm. yeah cash flow from operations lately has been about two billion so you're at four times debt to cash flow from operations and there's significant capex i mean it's not nothing they're paying almost 30 percent of cash flow from operations on capex they're also making acquisitions so your free cash flow in some of these periods is in a low billion range not closer to two billion and then you're using all of that to buy back stock so we get to the important question of whether what they're doing is uh, right and gonna be successful or not. And I think it comes down to business model. If what we're looking at here is like we are talking about with VeriSign, this may be the right way to run the business it is with a lot of stock buybacks, a lot of debt. Um, with the example of IMS Health, I only bought that company because it was using everything to buy back shares and in fact it was willing to have debt and all of that kind of thing so that was really significant and I thought it was appropriate to put debt on that company and the private equity firm thought it was appropriate to put even more debt on it and that's why it went private um so this looks like a kind of setup for a private equity thing that this would be a very logical LBO sort of thing right um and they're kind of getting halfway there in the public market by taking an approach which is uh, halfway towards what a private equity firm would do and what a public company normally looks like. Looks really interesting that way. Uh, I'd have to read more about it to learn about if it's as predictable as it appears to be. I'm sure there's always risks of like regulation and things like that. But obviously, based on the past numbers, it looks incredibly predictable.
0: Incredibly predictable. It screens very cheap. They're buying back a lot of their stock. It looks mm-hmm. pretty safe as well we'd like you said we'd have to learn more about the business model but from like a quant perspective this is what you would want to see the company look like if they're taking on a bunch of debt to buy back stock
1: yes now the warning here is that the 10-year median uh ebit margin is about 15. percent. the ev to sales is about 1.5 for a company that's not really growing uh more than five to six percent a year or so that actually is not that unusual so it's about 10 times in terms of the price that you're you're paying, you're paying uh, 10 times pre-tax profits uh, w- or what you'd expect it to be. So, you know, you, you tax that and then you take that in the form of a PE. It looks fairly normal, not expensive, but fairly normal. It's like a very predictable company, but that's not in normal times for the market. That's not a weird price to have. However, on a leverage basis, it's very cheap because mm-hmm. the price to sales is 0.8. So a lot of this is capital allocation And the benefits that you're getting from that in terms of buying the stock, the equity, as opposed to buying the entire company. And I think that you'd have to learn about that. But it's kind of the thing that gets me interested in Stella Jones, which we're talking about before, which is the capital allocation, how long it's been going on, all that. If you have a very predictable business, this is how you have to run it. Or to get really amazing returns this is how you have to run it. They are capable of taking on. A significant amount of debt and buying back a lot of stock and that can really change your returns. so it's sort of like an outsider's type thing you know if you read that book you look at that in relation to this company and how it might generate returns for you have you looked at stella jones recently mm-hmm. it's come down a bit i don't know if it's come down in the last few months but it i was a little surprised by that however it sells um some i think it uses a uh dash in between the name got it it's also in both canada and there we go. That's the over-the-counter over one, counter. yeah. Mm-hmm. So these numbers are going to be slightly different uh, because this company actually, although most of its business is in the US, it reports in uh, Canadian dollars, and then that's being translated over here. There's there's two stocks. Um, but it's very, very similar. The, the numbers will be almost identical if you look it up in QuickFS under each ticker. So this company, Stella Jones, is very predictable. Uh, What I was saying is I think one reason for it coming down, we could look at the stock chart, um, is probably related to it was um, one of the things it sells, and this business has gotten bigger for it recently. OTC markets, we'll just Mm -hmm. call it Stella Jones. So it's come down a little bit. Um, Let's see, that's, yeah, it's not that different from the S&P, right? No. Mm -mm. Yeah, so it's probably come down in line with the market or something like that. which, you know, is a, would be a little bit surprising because it wouldn't be that affected by recessions and things like that normally. And it's cheaper than it normally is. So that's all would make a lot of sense. However, what it's, might concern people a little bit is that in recent years, a bigger part of its business has been selling um, uh, treated wood for like decks, for outdoor stuff, sold through like big box, or, like a Home Depot, that kind of thing. Um, that, Business might be expected to turn down a lot, you know, to be very related to housing and things like that. I wouldn't expect the railway ties and the um, telecom poles to be affected uh, as much, the, uh, the, pa- the power, um, mm-hmm. electric, yeah. So uh, it's basically utility and rail are the two um, things that use the majority of their um, their end demand for their products. Yeah, know? I was going to say, is the deck a huge percentage of their revenue? It wasn't until recently, but it had become they have an investor relations thing. I bet we could see um, they have extensive investor relations. We could see how big it's become in the last couple of years. And then they also norm, the other thing is they normally have a part of the business that's just meant to uh, dump sort of product that they don't need. So it's actually meant to kind of create a loss for them. It's like lumber and other something they'll call it. it. It just generally would create a loss, but because of lumber pricing stuff, I think they may have actually generated some profit in that when it's just a way to recoup some, like there's a slight gross profit normally from it, but it's just a way of um, kind of liquidating stuff. Um, if you just look at their presentations, events and presentations,
0: Yeah, I clicked that and it said that there's an error. Well, you wrote this company up for Focus Compounding in 2019.
1: Yeah. Uh, But it's changed a bit due to changes in the housing Mm -hmm. Uh, in terms. That's the only thing I can think of is that people might be concerned about the business for. Okay, if you go up the residential lumber. Residential lumber. So it's 20% 20%. of sales. obviously utility poles and railway ties are not going to be affected um and even industrial products not really they say industrial products but it's a little complicated what that is but it it's industrial demand isn't a driver for it um but you also see logs and lumber what does it say about that
0: uh, logs and lumber nine percent of key one 2020. down from, 2022 sales yeah so down from 65 million it was Right. 57 million. So, yeah, so
1: there was some change in that too. That's no, that's normally a very small item for them. And I think it may, lumber prices may have gotten a little crazy. And so that affected things. Um, but even if we add all that together, you're still getting that railway ties and utility, utility poles and railway ties are two thirds of the business. And most of the profit and really more, most of the durable profit from the business. So, I would have expected that it would not be as affected as the S&P 500 generally. um, Just because the business is much more predictable than that. It is a little sensitive to capital costs because it does borrow money all the time. So there is a little bit of that going on. Um, And the reason why they do that, they're permanently leveraged is because it takes a long time to hold the inventory. That can't be avoided um they need to season you know it literally has to be a certain period of time before they're able to use the product it's almost a year i think so they're going to offset their inventory generally with debt if we see debt was 550 million long-term debt and was short-term yeah again pretty close to inventory i mean it's going to move around because you might have bought your inventory later you know, or mm-hmm. so it might be inaccurate in a certain period. But I would say as a rule, they're, they're deferred revenue, too. You could add that into it. But um, they're basically financing their inventory. That's the way that I would think of it. It's not really the financial engineering that they're planning to um, have a lot of debt so that they buy back stock or do an acquisition. It's really that they expect to be permanently having some debt to offset their inventory because it doesn't turn fast enough. And you can see that if you go to the income statement. Um you're going to see that the margin, or we could go to key ratios. It's easier. Um, the margin there is okay. Um, the operating margin, but it doesn't convert into a very good return on tangible capital employed because you're only turning your, um, product about once a year or something. You can see the two numbers are very close to each other. So, you know, um, if your operating margin is say like 15% or something, and you're noticing that your return on capital is also about 15%, then obviously that means that you're only selling through your product um mm-hmm. once and you can see that in in turns. Um if we go to overview, we can see that the stock is pretty cheap. So why I say it's pretty cheap is price to book is one point five times. Yeah, you could use price to sales. So the two ways of looking at it that are usually much more predictable in things like earnings and stuff like that for a company would be we either compare it to book value or to sales. Um, So we use price to book 1.5, and then we compare that to return equity, 16%. 16% divided by 1.5, we're above 10% return on equity, uh, earnings yield, normalized there. Similar with the EV to sales or price to sales, because we're always gonna have leverage here, so it's really price to sales we care about, but EV to sales is 1.1 times, and EBIT is a little bit better Then 12%, pre-tax income is 11.3, same idea. It's all telling you about 10 times. Now, interestingly Mm -hmm. here, the PE is also saying about 10 times. So I think from all that, we can kind of triangulate that you're getting about 10 times um, profits here, uh, after tax profits, but not cash flow. So if we go to the cash flow statement, you can see that this company is not going to generate a lot of cash flow for you right so net income last three years was 124 million 164 million and 177 million yep yeah but the cash flow from operations was only 68 uh what do you have there 139 and then 196. okay so you were higher in one part there but then you also have the capex that you need and this Mm -hmm. company also sometimes does acquisitions so free cash flow is significantly below um reported profits that's always going to be an issue at this company you have to kind of be okay with that. And if you're getting a 15% return on equity leveraged up, you know, when you're using 1.5 times leverage or something, um, then you're going to probably be happy with that. You're going to say, okay, keep reinvesting I'm in the business all the time for me. I don't need to take it out in cash. Um, and then in terms of cash, they use it to buy back stock. However, they also do pay dividends, right? Buybacks are bigger than dividends, yep. though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, and, and then they also made a disclosure that interested me a lot. Actually, what, what interested me was they had this little graph. Um, this was going back maybe a year or something where they kind of said how, what they planned to, it was their capital plans for the next, I think, three years. And it was very interesting in terms of what they said about how much they expected to use in dividends and buybacks. Uh, Cause I was looking at relative to the size of the company, some hints about what that meant um like if they're saying because we know that they only use it for capex for acquisitions they buy back their stock and they pay dividends you know mm-hmm. and it added up to a very nice number that suggested that they expect to generate quite a bit of free cash flow and then they would use a lot of it to buy back stock for instance but just in general that they were going to generate a lot of free cash flow under that plan if that's what they thought that they were going to have that much to allocate so I thought that was very interesting. That it's just a small little um, graph that they included, but I thought it was very interesting, and that's what got me interested in it. Recently, it wasn't actually the price declining, kind of in line with the S and P, but that little um, paragraph with that disclosure about their capital plans in the future. So, of course, they could change those. You know, who knows mm-hmm. what what could happen, but it was that capital allocation plan that interested me.
0: What do you think about it from looking at the um, overview? Seems like a company we'd be interested in. We like the return equity numbers. It looks like it's pretty, I mean, not expensive, um, would need to learn more about the business model, but it's kind of utility-like, right? Yeah, I mean, it's almost all replacement down, demand. Yeah, so Railway ties and, and utility poles, obviously right. neither one is new demand. When I brought this to you a couple of years ago or whatever, mm-hmm. I figured just from the business model, it's something that I thought you would be interested in. And uh, I think last time it was the leverage. I thought that maybe turned us off a little bit. Okay. From 2019, circa 2018, 2019, when we were looking at it. But Well, what was the price back then? We could go look at. Key ratios. This is market cap. Was at 1.9? Uh, yeah, 1.9 billion.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, it depends on the exact date and stuff. Um, but this company has been at around this sort of market cap for much of the last 10 years Mm -hmm. yeah you know and yet the earnings have come up which is something that we love to see right so the multiples have come down Mm -hmm. um part of that could be a lack of future growth prospects Uh, if you look there's been a significant shift in terms of the share count coming down now and I think, although the acquisitions look like they're still happening, the company's gotten bigger, so I think that's somewhat misleading. I think that you're seeing less growth and more uh, less organic growth, or not organic, but less growth of the overall business, both organic
0: and by buying things,
1: um, versus
0: reducing the share count to drive earnings per share growth. So we're talking about capital allocation here. Would you rather see a situation like Stella Jones or DaVita?
1: I think they're very similar. Yeah. Now, Which Stella Jones looks, isn't
0: pushing things as far as DeVita is. I was going DeVita yeah. looks more predictable. Really? Like the actual business itself, less variance in the numbers. Well, yeah. I mean, they have input costs, Stella Jones. I mean, you mm-hmm. know. Um, more of its net income converts
1: to cash. DeVita, yeah. That is a big DeVita. issue for Stella Jones is that this is not going to convert to cash. And sometimes you've got huge amounts of inventory that you have, especially when prices go up and all that. And inflation... be interesting how it affects both davida and how it affects stella jones yeah
0: um because somebody actually asked i have it on a on a presentation i scrapped because we're going to do it for next week because i figure markets the turmoil whatever um somebody asked how you think about free cash flow when a lot of the capex is growth capex so they generate a ton of cash but they're also plowing it back into the business how do you think about that from like a valuation perspective
1: yeah uh that's hard i kind of worry about it not getting as good returns in the future um, because you know that asset growth is my big concern that companies and industries that grow assets are likely to have worse returns in the future than they do currently i believe that's true for i mean we're seeing that pr- i mean i think we talked about it a little bit i said you know amazon's investing like as much as a, a u.s railroad mm-hmm. had during covid and look it turned out to be too much so their returns on capital are coming down you know they're, they're going to be worse because obviously they ended up with more space than they needed. Um, any is capable of doing that, even companies like that. Um, so I think that's always a risk. And so, uh, although it sounds good when companies say this, like uh, we can expand and here's the return that we get on our CapEx, right? So in theory, in a model, if they say we can get a 20% return uh, even say it was a twenty percent EBITDA return on the capital that we invested, then you say, okay, well that will create more than at least it'll create at least a dollar value, maybe more if we use EBITDA for instance. So for most companies, if you're going to spend a um, dollar to get twenty cents a year of EBITDA in the first year, that return will actually create more than a dollar of market value. So your stock will go up to the extent that you do that, rather than say pay it out in dividends or something. So that kind of thing if they can hit a number in that range of 20 percent plus EBITDA that's probably going to convert into things in terms of free cash flow earnings whatever that's going to get you a higher stock than you would if you didn't then if you generate in free cash flow so it's actually better than free cash flow to that kind of capex however a lot of times you overestimate what your future returns will be because you aren't taking into account that you are um, increasing supply uh, more rapidly than demand is. And also, if you're doing it, probably your competitors are doing it at the same time. You know, it's like Buffett says about being at a parade, everyone stands on their tiptoes. Mm-hmm. Um, that may also be what's happening with Amazon, too. Maybe a lot of other companies are doing the same thing, thinking the same thing. Maybe Walmart and Amazon are doing the same thing at the same time. That, that's a problem. So you're not only taking into account that you may have overestimated what you're doing, uh, underestimated. How much new supply you're, you're growing too fast but also your competitors may be doing the same thing and you're affected by both of them um so that's why i like things like stella jones and devita honestly that's why i mentioned stella jones in relation to devita is because both of them have modest enough um real growth very modest real growth um and so you don't have big increases in uh the possibilities of big miscalculations mm-hmm. in a sense they're both replacement type businesses i mean De- David is a maintenance type business. It's basically a health maintenance situation. And um, and Stella Jones is literally replacing almost all the businesses replacing existing um, capital in the railroad and uh, utility. So uh, I think they're similar that way. Now, let's see, what do we have here for the um, let's go to the balance sheet for Stella Jones. they have long-term debt of 550 million is that right Mm -hmm. okay um it says no cash so that's a uh um interesting um (laughs) <laughs> my memory is they j- i don't i don't have in front of me my memory is that they draw on a credit line and that they're funding inventories that way they do operate with nearly no cash at all times but literally here was saying zero cash which seems unlikely but um so the most recent quarter is 730 million in long-term debt yep okay they also have capital leases um and then let's go to cash flow so here's the issue right do you want quarterly or annual uh, annual please so from the thing we just did with devita the problem that you have here right is that cash flow from operations is only 200
0: million in the stella jones not devita
1: yeah stella no, jones is only 200 million um and then you have capex of like 50 million so at best you have 200 million in cash flow from operations like 150 million in free cash flow um your debt situation was around 800 million so that's about four times cash flow from operations um and even higher number when we're talking about free cash flow which is not that different from devita now a difference though is if we look at the income statement uh we're gonna see that a number that's often used is operating profit or ebit right ebit is 250 million and actually if we don't if we ignore capital leases which makes sense when i'm doing operating profit just because of how this works um because i'm not adding it back because i don't have that number in front of me so we have to use operating profit against um debt debt was only 750 million so it's three times debt to EBIT, which actually is appropriate. It's not too, it's not excessively conservative, but it's appropriate for something like Stella Jones. I think that's a good number to target. In fact, I think they target that as the top part of their range or something, but three times debt to EBIT makes sense. Um, DeVita looks a little, DeVita actually has more debt in relation to some of the numbers we look at. So if we look at DeVita, um,
0: let's see Go about their balance sheet yeah go to the balance sheet
1: okay and then if we look at their income statement yeah so if we look at an operating profit basis they're actually higher in terms of debt to EBIT um you're gonna be at a whole nother turn at least so in fact a little bit more than that so they have over $8 8 billion in debt and they have quite a bit less than 2 billion in operating profit but actually because of the cash flow dynamics they're perhaps a better credit risk than than Stella Jones on the other hand you could say well look i mean if you i mean the quantity of inventory that Stella Jones has does potentially uh, mitigate a lot of the credit risk you know um But I think it's harder for people to evaluate. Most people aren't used to evaluating the value of inventory, um, although it's huge in that case. So I think they're not that different to me in terms of their credit risk here. Um, By the numbers, Stella Jones would look somewhat better. But in terms of a business and the cash flow dynamics of it, DeVito would be the better credit risk. Um, Which would you rather own? um, so stella jones maybe has a little bit less risk from regulatory and um know government policy those sorts of things and maybe even technology stuff um it feels like something that there'd be less efforts in um that could kind of risk uh, the durability of the business that Compared way. To Compared to Davida. Compared to DaVita, yeah. Because it's a more sensitive topic, DaVita. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, even in the case of Stella Jones from a government perspective and stuff, while the end, um, while their customer is definitely a sensitive topic, utilities and, and railroads, um, suppliers into them are not a sensitive topic uh, government-wise. Um, now, Stella Jones, though, does have, I've always wondered about their environmental situation. Cause they do, they are doing some things that have some health risks in terms of, um, uh, what they're doing with the product, um, the process involved. And I don't know enough about that. And I don't know if at some future date, you know, things will be, um, there'll be questions about whether people were exposed to certain things. Um, it just seems like there will always be some potential for that with what they're doing. Um, so with the, the way they're treating wood and stuff. So, um you know, maybe that balances out or something because you don't have that problem at DaVita. I'm just less, like, sure of the future trajectory for uh, dialysis, you know, than I feel like I would be for a demand in rail and Mm -hmm. utility. Of course, people could say, well, they could replace with a different material, obviously, in those businesses. So, Stella Jones? I think they're very comparable. They're very comparable on price, very comparable on capital allocation. I know they're in totally different industries, but... Totally different countries. So, really U- Stella Jones is really in the U.S. It reports in Canadian dollars it's a Canadian company, but it's mostly U.S. and some Canada. Um, so I think uh, they're incredibly comparable on most of those numbers. And if I was looking for things in the multi-billion dollar category, um, I would probably... You know, both of them would definitely be something I consider putting in it. I mean, if if you had a value fund that was multi-billion dollars, I think both of these should be in it probably. Hmm. Yeah. And I've always thought Stella Jones would be a good thing for Berkshire, but it doesn't really work because uh, Berkshire is in both utility and rail. But like buying all of Stella Jones would make sense. But mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding podcast. If this is the first time you're joining us, hit the subscribe button. If you're interested in learning about our money management services, uh, let's start the conversation by reaching out to me at andrew at focusedcompounding.com. Um, contrary to popular belief, good time to reach out is when stocks are down. Isn't that right, Jeff? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's a good time mm-hmm. to reach out. If you're interested in Quick FS. Um, uh, you can sign up and tell them that you came from focus compounding during the checkout. I will thank everybody so much for a lot of support and we will see you in the next podcast.